Go ahead, Prof. Thank you. Good afternoon and welcome to today's webinar on the impact of COVID-19 on breastfeeding and early childhood development. I'm Finn Regan from the Human Sciences Research Council and you're very welcome. Thank you for taking the time to join today's conversation. The HSRC has been deeply invested in understanding better the effects, the negative and deleterious effects of the global pandemic and developing the knowledge and the evidence base so that we can respond the best that we can at a national, a regional and a global level in terms of ensuring ongoing protection and supports and service delivery for all people, but including the most marginalized and the most vulnerable, and specifically in relation to women and children. We know that the COVID-19 pandemic has exposed high levels of health inequalities and poverty, most prevalent, of course, in low and middle income countries. And one of the approaches that we know that could be used to reduce these inequalities is the life course approach with a specific focus on early childhood development, which we're going to be hearing about more about today. And within this broader context, we know that nutrition plays a certainly vital role in children's physiological, cognitive and emotional development. Breast milk is the first and the best nutrition that an infant needs to prevent respiratory infections as it contains antibodies that enhance the immune system. And as you might know, today no studies have found COVID-19 in breast milk. And the World Health Organization recommends that the response to COVID-19 must be to ensure that breastfeeding is promoted, supported and protected and that mothers and babies are not separated. However, often policies in this regard have been developed rapidly with little evidence and have resulted in a confusion, in some cases, of mixed messages. Where it is culturally appropriate to do so, some countries, including South Africa, have established breast milk bans. However, lockdown regulations have restricted access to these and the provision of breast milk to milk banks, as lockdown has affected so many other sectors of our lives in recent months. The global virtual collaborative network of milk banks, comprising over 80 milk bank leaders from 36 countries, have collated challenges experienced by milk banks during the crisis and formulated suggested responses. This is important because it ensures that donor milk remains a safe and essential part of newborn care um, when, uh, due to lack and when uh, availability is curtailed. The nurturing care framework suggests that breastfeeding be viewed beyond its health and nutritional benefits. And of course, we know that COVID has also seen an increase in the marginalization of women who are often providers of nutrition to children as they have been disabled from fully participating in the informal economy. And therefore, women's livelihoods, food insecurity, poverty and other considerations are central to our conversation today. So thank you again for taking the time to join us in today's important conversation. We have for you some of the national and global leading thinkers in this area. Um, Professor Anna Katsudis unfortunately is able to join us, but you will know her work, her 100 plus publications as a medical scientist and professor emeritus at the School of Clinical Medicine at the University of KwaZulu-Natal. Her research, Anna's research on HIV and breastfeeding over many years has played an important role in shaping the global response on HIV and infant feeding. Anna 
and is represented today with her team, along with Dr. Penny Ramers, who is a registered nurse, a midwife, and international board-certified lactation consultant, who has been involved in human milk banking in South Africa since its inception. Penny, we're very privileged to have with us today an expert in the area and a leading voice in the area, ran the Ithembaletu community-based milk bank for 10 years and was a founding member of the Human Milk Banking Association of South Africa. And as you know, has had a wide range of experiences as a postdoctoral fellow in the Department of Child Health and Pediatrics at the University of KwaZulu-Natal and involved in multiple systems and programs related to human milk pasteurization and a WHO international expert in many ways and often consulted for her knowledge in this area. We have Dr. Vidad Sleming also joining us and very privileged to have her with us. And Dr. Sleming is a senior lecturer in the Division of Community Pediatrics at the University of the Witwatersrand, where her role comprises undergraduate and postgraduate health science education, including undergraduate and specialist medical training. And through her work in a variety of settings in South Africa and internationally, has gained extensive clinical experience in these fields, as well as in the development, implementation, and review of programs and policies. And we're very pleased to have um, uh, Dr. Sleming with us. Dr. Dumo Inquanazi is at the Human Sciences Research Council. She holds a PhD in the University of, from the University of the Witwatersrand, and her work has focused on community-based HIV and infant feeding studies, the vertical transmission study at the African Africa Health Research Institute, as well as the WHO's multi-site Koshobora clinical trial. And uh, Dumo um, was the convener, is the convener of today's panel. And finally, we're thrilled to have joining us, along with um, uh, Dr. Penny from the UK, we also have Kamesh Flynn joining us from the, from the UK. Uh, Kamesh worked in South Africa for 20 years as a teacher, social worker, counselor, NGO director, and policymaker and her experience in working in government to design and implement policy, specifically improving education outcomes and opportunities for youth development and unearthing deep systemic issues has had and continues to have an impact at the national, regional and global level, including her role as a WHO policy advisor. And uh, we are privileged to have Kamesh with us today. So colleagues, as you can hear, you have an illustrious panel uh, speaking to us today. We encourage you to use the chat box function. I see that we have um, a good audience today. We have lots of voices in the room from uh, different parts of the globe and, and different sectors. So please avail of this opportunity. We have an, an hour and a half uh, together to really grapple with these issues and ultimately to improve the lives of infants and their mothers, ensuring that they get access to the nutrition that they require in particularly difficult times of pandemic. Please feel free, fill that chat box function. As we go through, if you have thoughts, ideas, or comments on our panelists' contributions and presentations, put them in the chat box. We have a couple of moments after each presentation for the panelists to respond directly to your questions, to answer those burning issues that you flag. We also have time at the end for a Q&A before we close. So many thanks for uh, panelists for taking the time uh, to, to connect in uh, from South Africa and, and from the UK. Thank you audience members for your 
connecting in from around the world. Thank you, Dumo, for bringing this together. And thank you very much as ever to the HSRC team, who I want to mention up front, for Thabo, uh, to ensuring that we are connected, we can hear each other, and to Arlene for ensuring that it all runs smoothly. So without further ado, let's hand over to Dr. Penny. Over to you, Penny, thank you. Great. Can everyone hear me? Yes, we can, Penny. Thank okay. you. Wonderful. Thank you so much to the uh, team for pulling this all together. This is such an important topic and one that's really close to my heart. Um, the COVID-19 pandemic poses a threat, not only because of the risk of uh, infants becoming infected, but also because of the risk of separating mothers and their infants. And in the separation, um, denying infants opportunity of close proximity to their mothers, uninterrupted time at the breast, breast factors that we know are very foundational for the health and well-being of infants and their mothers. So sadly, Anna can't be here today, but we've collaborated on this presentation. And briefly, we're going to have a look at donor milk banking in South Africa. Uh, we can't look at breastfeeding without looking at donor milk banking, at COVID and breastfeeding, the risks of separating mothers and their infants, learning from the mistakes of HIV, and then briefly looking at the Global Alliance of Donor Milk Banks. As far back as 2008, the World Health Organization called for donor milk banking to be used as the first alternative if mother's milk was not available. And in 2011, our Minister of Health called for donor milk banks to be supported and promoted as a way of reducing infant mortality and morbidity. So what is donor milk banking? It's a service that screens potential healthy donors in the community, collects the milk, processes it by pasteurization, tests the milk, and then it's stored until it's required in NICUs to be fed to vulnerable infants. Why do we go to the trouble to use donor milk? Because we know that compared to formula, breast milk lowers the incidence of hospital-acquired infections, such as necrotizing intracolitis by as much as, in preterm infants, by as much as 79%. In the 1980s, Penny, sorry to sorry to interrupt you, Penny. If you'd like to share your presentation, please feel free to do that as well. Thank you. Because I'm aware that we do have the option to be able to, to share um, presentations. And colleagues um, and audience members, please feel free to populate that chat box as well as, um, as Dr. Penny is making her presentation with any thoughts that uh, that come up. Um, it clearly is a pressing. Sorry, I'm having some trouble here. I thought I had shared my screen. Um, I'm not quite sure why it's not coming up here. No problem. And um, Tabo, can you... there we go. Uh, Tabo has started sharing the screen. Penny, you can ask him to move the slides along. Uh, okay. saying... So shall I go back and start at the beginning or shall we just continue? Sure. Yes, absolutely. And just let Tabo know with next screen that he should okay. use. Tabo, could we just start on uh, slide number four, please? Yep, can you see? Can you see that? Everyone see that? 
We can, Penny. Yeah. Thank you. Sorry about that. I don't know what happened. So basically, donor milk banking is a service which uh, uh, screens mums, collects the milk, pasteurizes it, tests it, and then stores it until it's available for um, use in the NICU. Next slide. Thank you, Tabo. Are we on six now? Sorry, I can't see what slide we're on. <laughs> we're on the community-based milk bank slide 2001. Donor milk is a gift of life. Okay, perfect. So um, milk banks op operated informally in the 1980s and then with HIV being transmitted through breast milk, they all closed down. Then they discovered that pasteurization killed the HIV virus and milk banks began opening again. In 2001, Prof. Anna Katsudis and a group of her friends started an NGO called the Tembaletu and one arm of this was a, a transition home to care for babies who were orphaned or abandoned as a result of HIV. Um, the first baby arrived, he was very ill. She got a friend who was breastfeeding to donate a bit of milk. There was a massive improvement in his condition. So she approached UNICEF and UNICEF provided seed money for this milk bank to be opened. And it's continued to run. Over a hundred babies have been through the home and adopted into wonderful families. They've been fed on donor milk during their stay in the, um, in the home and we've seen amazing improvements in their condition fed on donor milk. Next slide please. So ways of pasteurizing milk is either using the holder method and you have big expensive machines that do this, obviously using a lot of water and electricity. Another method, next slide please, uh, is using a high temperature short-time pasteurization method. Anna uh, won an award from GSK Save the Children and with that money uh, developed a low, this uh, pasteurization system which is uh, obviously low cost and can be used uh, in very uh, limited resources. Um, it's amazing because it uses off-the-shelf Raspberry Pi technology you have a touch screen which guides you through the pasteurization process. It prints labels on a handheld printer. Um, next slide, please. And also prints a pasteurization curve um, and then gives you all the uh, advantages of pasteurization, but obviously at a much lower cost. This has been used in a number of countries in Africa, uh, in Asia, and also in New Zealand. Next slide, please. This is a picture of uh, the World Breastfeeding Conference that was held in Johannesburg a few years ago. Our engineer, Noel Powell, who developed the system and Anna Katsudis. Next slide, please. So donor milk banks operate throughout South Africa. The South African Breast Milk Reserve is based in Gauteng and they have a number of breast milk banks across the country. In KwaZulu-Natal, the Department of Health have 11 plus milk banks um, in hospitals throughout the province. In the Western Cape, Milk Matters is based at Mowbray and they supply a number of hospitals uh, in the country with donor milk. The Department of Health have drawn up regulations on milk banking and these should be promulgated soon. Um, next slide, please. I think one of the important things to remember is that donor milk is always the second best option for a baby and the mother's own milk is always first prize because it's tailor-made for her baby. And we should always be supporting these mothers to 
produce milk to establish their supply so they can take over the provision of milk and that those babies can actually leave the NICU breastfeeding. How we measure success in donor milk banking is not that we've pasteurized more milk, fed more babies, but it's that we need less milk. We've pasteurized less milk, fed less babies because the mothers have taken over the provision of milk for their own babies. Next slide, please. So when it comes to COVID and breastfeeding, there's been so much confusion around this, so much fear and apprehension, I think because of the whole HIV pandemic, but the World Health Organization have been very clear that close contact and early exclusive breastfeeding helps a baby thrive. So a woman who has COVID-19 should be supported to breastfeed safely, to hold her newborn skin to skin and to share a room with her baby. Next slide, please. So women with COVID-19 can breastfeed if they wish to do so, practicing respiratory hygiene, washing their hands and routinely cleaning surfaces. Next slide, please. So if a woman has COVID and she's unwell, too unwell to breastfeed, she can be supported to express her milk, which can still be fed to her baby. If she's too sick to do this, um, she can, donor milk can be fed to the baby. And once she recovers, she can be encouraged and helped to relactate so the baby can um, be placed back on the breast. Next slide, please. So what are countries doing about recommendations when it comes to um, separating moms and babies. Sadly, many of them aren't following the World Health Organization's advice. Um, many of them are separating moms and babies still. The CDC in the US and the Academy of Pediatrics in the US uh, initially recommended separating moms and babies, but fortunately, with further research, they've now changed those recommendations. The big problem is when we separate moms and babies and they don't have access to breast milk, trying to re-establish the breastfeeding after a period becomes really difficult and challenging. Infants breastfeed, infants who breastfeed less frequently in the early weeks are known to be less likely to be breastfeeding at three months. Next slide, please. So the importance of skin to skin, we know that the infant's microbiome develops from being exposed to the mother's flora. So this is really important that the mums, especially in a pandemic, that mums and babies are placed skin to skin. We know that the skin to skin helps with attaching to the breast. It optimizes breastfeeding. The more a baby feeds in the initial weeks, the better that mom's supply is going to be for the whole time that she breastfeeds. Some organizations have been recommending the mom washes before the baby is placed skin to skin, but we know that maternal odors are important chemical signals. They help the baby locate and attach to the breast, so this should be discouraged. We know the surge of oxytocin facilitates maternal bonding, and we know too that that bonding and that oxytocin reduces stress levels in the mother and in her infant. So this is really important in a time when people are really anxious. So separating mothers and their infants for the first few days um, disturbs this attachment and development and it affects the infant's health, both physical and mental. Next slide, please. So Anna Kasudis was very involved in the research around exclusive breastfeeding and HIV in the 90s and she and Colleen Gribble and a number of colleagues have written an article um, which these points were taken from. In 1985 the CDC in America made recommendations about discouraging breastfeeding based on one case of transmission of HIV uh, from a breastfeeding mom to her infant. Sadly the 
lower and middle income countries followed their advice and started with the provision of free formula. This had devastating consequences in many countries and particularly in Africa. And it took 20 years to conclusively determine that HIV transmission rates are very low with exclusive breastfeeding between 0 and 1.3% for three to six months of breastfeeding. Formula unfortunately resulted in high infant mortality while HIV-free survival was maximized by exclusive breastfeeding. So the known health and psychological risks of maternal separation and compromised breastfeeding are far greater than the potential risk of transmitting COVID through maternal skin to skin, close proximity or breastfeeding. Next slide, please. Breastfeeding should be interrupted because should not be interrupted because of a fear of transmission of COVID. In China, they're still separating moms and babies for two weeks. They're not even allowing um, the moms to express milk for their babies, and this is all based on very little evidence. The Lancet breastfeeding series in 2016 provided a huge amount of evidence about the short and long-term consequences of not breastfeeding. And um, this should be the basis for influencing policy of not separating mums and babies. Maternal separation in low resource settings where there's far greater risk of disease will have even more devastating consequences. Next slide, please. So what do we know? We know there's no clear evidence of vertical transmission through breastfeeding. Viral RNA particles have been found in breast milk, but no live virus was found. Antibodies to COVID have been found in breast milk, suggesting that breast milk may provide specific protection against the virus. And recent research has also shown that COVID is effectively inactivated by holder pasteurization, although it is not inactivated by cold storage. Next slide, please. So the recommendations are that we place infants skin to skin after delivery, we initiate breastfeeding within the first hour, we keep those moms and infants together, exclusively breastfeeding, we practice prevention control measures, and if the mum's too ill, that we look at donor milk to be used and relactation once that mum is recovered. Next slide, please. So um, as Finn mentioned, there's a global community who've come together to collaborate and share learnings. This was set up by Nat Dr. Natalie Schenker and Gillian Weaver of the Hearts Milk Bank in the UK. Um, it's provided a a lot of feedback, um, sharing of these learnings, which has enabled a lot of countries to change their recommendations. Uh, there are about 80 leaders from 36 countries. They've determined that over 800,000 infants are annually fed donor milk around the world. So the challenges initially were donor milk availability. Obviously in China, they needed a lot more because mums were not allowed to breastfeed. Um, you had to include screening for COVID to ensure that donor mothers were healthy. There, was logistic, there were logistical problems, mums being too scared to go to have uh, their screening done at labs. But as lockdown is eased, this has gradually improved. There was fear amongst communities and healthcare that donor milk was safe. So there had to be a lot of communication. And initially with social distancing, the transportation of donor milk was problematic. This has largely been overcome. And additional hygiene measures were um, placed, were uh, recommended in milk banks, although these were already very strict. And some milk banks are quarantining milk before they actually pasteurize it. So in conclusion, the threat of separating mums and babies and the consequences of doing so are far greater than the possible threat of infection. 
and Dr. Eidelman from Breastfeeding Medicine said, given the reality that mothers infected with coronavirus have probably already colonized their nursing infant, continued breastfeeding has the potential of transmitting protective maternal antibodies to the infant via the breast milk. Obviously, these mothers practicing um, all the necessary precautions. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Penny. Um, clear recommendations, colleagues. It seems like the science is directing us very clearly and directly in terms of what needs to be done. Also, lessons learned, uh, Penny, hearing that quite strongly. Lessons learned over the last uh, number of years and decades, including in relation to HIV. Colleagues, we've had a very um, direct very um, necessary engagement around recommendations in this time of COVID. What are your thoughts? Use the chat box there. Give us your, your sense uh, your, of your response and any questions that you might have for, for Penny. Penny, we do have a question that came through earlier on. Um, if a COVID positive lactating mother is in, is in isolation with some symptoms, what should we recommend? And, is not in high care ICU. That's from patients. Okay, obviously it will depend very much on the, um, the healthcare provider, but certainly there's no need to separate the mum and her baby. Um, obviously, unless the mum is very ill, but she should continue um, being nursed with her baby with no separation. Yes, so that is really the crux of it, Penny, from what we can hear. Separation yeah. is not the way to go. We've learned that from the past. We must continue on that trajectory. That's where the science and the evidence and our experience has, has led us. This is something that we know. Very good. Um, colleagues, feel free to jump in with the chat box before we move on to our next presentation. Uh, there will be time for, of course, the Q&A and those burning issues or thoughts that you have um, uh, in relation to Penny and Anna's presentation and indeed to, to all, of, all of our panelists. Um, without much further ado then, thank you so much, Penny. And um, Dr. Slemming, Vidad Slemming, um, as indicated earlier, based at the University of the Witwatersrand, uh, currently serves in a number of maternal and child health technical advisory groups and steering committees at a national and an international level. And her particular areas of expertise and research includes child health and nutrition, early childhood development, child disability, and health systems strengthening. Bidad, over to you. Thank you very much, Fung. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, I, I really enjoyed listening to Penny's presentation because um, it's taking me into a, really a segue into my presentation where I'll be linking the breastfeeding and early childhood development agendas a little bit more closely. Um, I'm just trying to... get full screen. <laughs> anyway. Give me a second. Sure, no problem at all. We're all... Colleagues, we're all learning through the technology on a daily basis in terms of this and coordinating our varied tech platforms and so on. Uh, Vidad, if you have any challenges, we do see the, the screen clearly, even if it's not full screen. Perfect. Okay. Fantastic. So I'll be reflecting on three things and, I, and um, probably repeating a little bit of what Penny has said, just in terms of reinforcing key messages. Um, and then perhaps a lead into um, Duo's presentation on the life course approach. 
So I'll start off by talking about the importance of breastfeeding for early childhood development. I'll reflect briefly on the nurturing care framework that many of you might be familiar with, um, and really in terms of the additional benefits that breastfeeding poses to child health and well-being beyond just nutrition and, and health. And really reinforcing again why the continued promotion, protection and support for breastfeeding is so essential during the current pandemic for infants and their mothers. So often when we talk about um, breastfeeding, we talk about it specifically limited to breast milk in many instances, and often related to its immunological and nutritional properties. Um, and it really undersells the huge benefits that breastfeeding as an act has both for the mothers and infants. Um, and I think this is something that has to change, particularly um, under the current circumstances. Um, we know that infants don't just breastfeed because they're hungry or thirsty, but really it's often about seeking affection and comfort to interact with their caregivers. Um, it helps them to relax, to soothe, and often to fall asleep. And it's not just about the milk. Young children experience the world as an environment of relationships, which are really important for all aspects of the development. And it starts with the relationship between the mother and the infant, and that often starts with breastfeeding. So breastfeeding, and as we just facilitated by skin-to-skin -skin contact, and as Penny said, really can form the foundation for not only optimal health and nutrition, but also the basis for building healthy relationships. And this healthy, positive interactions have a two-generational effect. For the mother, the baby suckling at her breast forges new neurochemical pathways in her brain that reinforces maternal behavior. It helps with relaxation and mood. And it also, these huge increases in oxytocin that happen um, makes her more aware of her baby signals, helps her to interpret it more effectively and also to respond to a baby appropriately. For the infant, um, the act of breastfeeding influences the development of the hippocampus, which is the emotion control center in the brain. And it influences the interaction between the hypothalamus, the pituitary and the adrenal glands or the HPA axis which mediates stress responses. So more skin-to-skin -skin contact and more breastfeeding helps with our ability to respond to stress later. So you can see it's got multiple benefits beyond just health and nutrition. This is a slide showing a famous research psychologist called Andrew Maltzoff, who was very interested to find out at what age infants could start seeing and also start copying uh, parental expressions. So he conducted a number of experiments with young infants. And when he had his own son, he decided to do them much earlier. Previous experiments showed that children between the ages of three to six months were able to see their parents' expressions and also copy them appropriately. And when he had his own son, he started these experiments earlier. And on this slide, you'll see his two-day-old son. And what Andrew found was that his son was able to, one, see his expressions, but also copy them effectively. And this slide reinforces two key messages. One, that infants learn from birth and that they're also able to see from birth. Two things that are not often in our research known very well by public. So it's two messages that we really want to link not only with development, but I think is important to link with breastfeeding, which I'll show you in the next slide. Many researchers conducted similar experiments after this one, but with varying results. And the other thing that Andrew found in his research was, one, that there was a certain distance within which you had to hold the baby. So the baby had to be close. And he found that 
beyond about 30 centimeters, young infants were not able to visualize clearly. So they couldn't see effectively. The other thing we found was that they needed to be face-to-face. -face. Now, how do you breastfeeding? When you look at the position that children are being held in when they breastfeed, it really fits with those principles. One, they is held close to the mother, often turned towards the mother, face-to-face, -face, and the distance between the mother and the baby is within that distance required for them to be able to visualize effectively and to be able to interact. And this really helps with not only the vision development, but provides foundation for learning and for interaction between the mother and the child, and provides a safe and secure base for the child to explore, not only the environment, but also in the interactions with others. So really breastfeeding creates this, this very natural environment that is not only safe and secure, but provides the foundations for responsive care and early learning from birth. When we look at the nurturing care framework, it highlights five key components that have been identified as essential for making sure that children are healthy and grow and develop optimally. It also are the aspects that the infant's brain expects and depends on for healthy development. And so nurturing care really is about making sure that children stay healthy and if they are ill, they get the required health care, that they receive proper nutrition to grow well, and that they are cared for in safe and secure environments by responsive caregivers um, and are provided with learning opportunities from birth. It's also at the center of the UN Sustainable Development Goals and the transformation agenda that the world seeks to achieve by 2030. And I think Dumo will talk about this a little bit more in the next presentation. But inherently, breastfeeding is also part of that uh, central agenda. When we start looking at the individual components of nurturing care, we can see that I've drawn these arrows to show that breastfeeding contributes to each one of them, not only health and nutrition. We know that there are multiple health benefits for the infant and for the mother, not only protection against infections and mortality, but also protection against non-communicable diseases late in life, both for the infant and for the mother that it provides the foundation for option, optimal nutrition and growth. Uh, we talked about how it can um, facilitate maternal behavior and responsive caregiving, how it provides a safe base and, uh, uh, and security for the infant to be able to explore not only the immediate environment, but also the ability to build social relationships with others. Research also suggests that children who have been breastfed are less likely to be deserted in hospital. Um, and early learning, we talked about how it can provide a foundation for learning from birth. But there's also a growing body of evidence that supports that breastfeeding is beneficial for cognition and behavior and later educational attainment and income potential in adulthood. So really there's a broader breastfeeding narrative that really needs to come through um, more strongly, I think, in terms of the multiple benefits, not only for the infant, but also for the mother. But we know that nurturing care starts before birth. There's a, a, a huge amount of sensory development, particularly that happens in utero, um, and that the growing fetus uh, is able to respond to sound and also to touch, and from birth can recognize familiar voices, particularly the mothers. We also know that um, breastfeeding intentions are usually established by the third trimester of pregnancy. And I think we need to bring these two aspects together. They're trying to establish these strong emotional connections during pregnancy are beneficial for breastfeeding 
counseling as well. And often we don't bring in the aspect of support early on into the conversations around breastfeeding when trying to counsel uh, pregnant women about the benefits of breastfeeding. So I think we really need to link not only the health and nutrition benefits to the infant um, as a way of, of trying to, to, to establish that breastfeeding intention early on. We really need to broaden it to include the benefits to the mother as an individual in terms of health and, and, and caregiving, but also to the, the infant in terms of the health, nutrition, and developmental benefits. And make sure that when we have these conversations, our health workers are able to deliver those, um, those counseling messages and support effectively, and that we don't do it in isolation with just the pregnant woman, that really her support network is involved in those counseling sessions. Because I think it's really important, particularly now under COVID-19 um, circumstances, where there's so much um, confusion and uncertainty about breastfeeding and COVID-19, that we really need to make sure that mothers continue to breastfeed and that the default position, as uh, Pinier said, is continued breastfeeding, support, promotion and protection and zero separation of mothers and infants. We can only do that if everybody's on the same page. In terms of uh, COVID-19 and breastfeeding, as we heard Pinier say earlier, really the principles are the same. The things that are, we, we deem beneficial for infants and mothers um, under general circumstances continue to be of the utmost importance. So we need early and constant contact between parents and their newborns, not only for infant survival, but also to ensure that they thrive. That um, it's important that they receive nurturing care from birth because the quality of care that they receive affects not only their health and uh, growth, but also their brain development and it can have lasting impacts on their health. Now, the WHO has given, uh, provided quite a lot of global guidance on this, but our local uh, or national guidelines align quite well with WHO. But as Penny has indicated, we still find instances at health facilities in particular where these guidelines are not implemented as they should be. And I think that's really the discussion that we should be having today about how to make sure that we continue to, one, um, even if women are COVID-19 positive, support breastfeeding safely, that they continue with other beneficial uh, newborn practices such as skin to skin and no separation. So I think that the important thing is, and this relates a little bit to the question that was posed earlier, Finn, as well, about what happens if a mother is too ill to be with her baby? What are the alternatives? So the default position is continued breastfeeding, but we know that there are exceptional circumstances where that may not be possible. However, Penny's given us a, a very useful outline of what should happen under those circumstances. Mothers definitely should be supported to continue expressing breast milk. If that's not possible, there are donor milk banks. Um, and when the mother is well enough, that she should be supported to relactate as soon as possible. But I think really what we should get clear in our minds is that the, those are for the exceptional circumstances. And our default position really should be continued breastfeeding support for the mother and the infant, with zero separation. The other thing I'd like to highlight is that we, we are currently in circumstances where many children are being hospitalized um, for a number of reasons, not only COVID-19, but we, in some, in some settings in South Africa, there are provisions made for children when they are hospitalized to have a caregiver present. And I think there's no scarier time than now to be a child in a hospital 
because you're so unsure, if there's so much anxiety, there's so much uh, uh, just, you know, the, 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 the circumstances are not really reassuring at this time. And I think no, no time more than now do we need children to be admitted and have caregivers present. And so I want to bring into this conversation that we have to ensure that all hospitalized children should have caregivers present, not only newborns and young infants. So the zero separation really is, a, is for me a much broader message than, that goes a little bit beyond just the breastfeeding agenda. In terms of um, summary, I think it's really global guidance, but also our national guidelines talk to this. That regardless of COVID-19 status, mothers and infants should remain together. Breastfeeding should continue. That there is continued skin-to-skin -skin contact and kangaroo mother care. Where the mother is separated from her baby, there is no reason why an alternate caregiver cannot be present. And that caregiver could be the father or could be some significant adult in the child's life who is able to continue with those beneficial practices, to continue with the skin-to-skin to be there to feed the baby in the absence of the mother. Um, somebody who will continue to be familiar to that baby. And I think that helps not only with the infant uh, health and well-being, but also maternal, physical and mental well-being, because there's nothing that causes more anxiety than a mother not being with her baby and not knowing what's happening. So I think those sorts of things need to come into our thinking when we're not, we, we, under current circumstances, but really should become the norm. And we, what we're doing for COVID-19 should not only be for COVID-19, that these are general principles that should be practiced under all conditions. Rooming in day and night, we know that that's part of our um, breastfeeding uh, hospital initiative guidelines, but we know that that doesn't always happen. And so it's really just about making sure that this practice is, con is practiced and that um, under current circumstances, we are also adhering to infection prevention and control measures. And really that when we are counseling women about the benefits of breastfeeding, uh, like Penny said, you know, there's currently no evidence um, to support that breastfeeding should not happen. And that we really put through the message that the benefits of breastfeeding substantially outweigh the potential risks of transmission. In terms of national guidelines and support, our Road to Health booklet aligns very well with the nurturing care framework. And as part of the rollout of the Road to Health booklet, there's a national under five side by side campaign, which provides resources and information for caregivers, but also health workers. And as part of a campaign, there are breastfeeding resources available, so general breastfeeding resources, so Q&A booklet on what you should know about breastfeeding, but also a, a pamphlet, a resource that's been developed specifically for questions around breastfeeding and COVID-19 that's accessible to healthcare workers, but also caregivers. And you can find it on the side-by-side -side website. And there's also a Facebook page where you can see there's a radio drama that's been launched in July nationwide on radio stations. There's also a regular radio slot on most of the popular radio stations in South Africa where caregivers can call in with any health, child health related question and have an expert available to answer those questions for them. There's also a website that was launched called Messages for Mothers, um, which is a partnership between civil society organizations and the National Department of Health through the Side by Side campaign um, during the COVID-19 um, uh, pandemic. It's been launched to provide resources and information for um, not only caregivers and mothers in particular, but also the general public on health and, and even developmental related uh, questions and issues. 
Um, I just also want to alert people that at, during breastfeeding week, Saxo Watch um, hosted a breastfeeding dialogue where we invited mothers and fathers to share some of the experiences of breastfeeding, not only under COVID-19 uh, lockdown conditions, but generally, and I think it'd be really interesting and informative for us to listen to um, what they had to say, because it highlighted some key gaps and really where things are going wrong and what we should be doing to, to improve the protection, support and promotion of breastfeeding generally, but definitely also under lockdown conditions. I think everybody would agree that breastfeeding is important at any time, but much more so now during the pandemic. Many South African children are being born into conditions of great adversity. The science tells us that adequate nutrition and consistent supportive caregiving are the best ways to offset the effects of multiple and ongoing adversity and to support healthy growth and brain development. So breastfeeding must be supported, protected and promoted, not only to provide protection against disease, but also against the effects of the mental and social impacts to the mother and child at this time I have, not only on their current health and well-being, but also on their future health and well-being. And I think that there's a lot more that we can do to try and ensure that this happens for all children um, and that best practice is instituted consistently under the current pandemic situation, but generally for all children in South Africa. Thank you. Thank you so much, Bidad. The message is clear, zero separation. There are too many and multiple health benefits for both mother and infant, um, including those broader benefits in terms of development, global development and the SDGs. Thank you so much, Bidad. Thank you for all your work in this area and some very interesting and useful resources there that you flagged for us. Bidad, we have comments, we have questions coming in in our chat box. Um, in the interest of time, I'm going to hold some of those until the Q&A at the end, but there is one. We've had comments from Edelweiss and we've had comments from Ruth, which we will address in the Q&A. But I just want to go back to a comment that came in from Ronell related to Penny's presentation, but also related to yours. Given the evidence base, we know what the message is, zero separation, and we know why, because of the benefits. But Vidal, why do you think that separation continues? despite all of this evidence indicating the opposite. Yeah, so unfortunately, there's a problem generally with guideline implementation. We've got wonderful guidelines, we've got wonderful guidance available. Um, often it falls down a little bit at the practical implementation. Um, and it's done variably different settings. We know that in some settings, people are adhering to guidelines very well. And in other settings, there's all sorts of innovations that have happened with no rhyme or reason, like Penny said, sometimes with very little evidence to support those actions. Um, and I think it's really about making sure that the guidelines that come out nationally, not only WHO, because we have to translate that at a national level. It's clear, it's unequivocal. So if I'm a health worker at any hospital or any facility in the country, I know exactly what I need to do and that there's very little um, ambiguity in, in the guidance that, that I have to follow. And I think that's maybe where we have been working as civil society with the Department of Health to try and improve on that part of it. And there's a lot to do in terms of supporting the translation and the implementation of those guidelines. 
not only from the top down through uh, Department of Health and so on, but also at a, at a practical level through civil society partners, through health workers in facilities who, um, who are able to support the correct implementation. Um, and I think, yeah, I think also, you know, a lot of it also stems from perhaps some of these practices not being institutionalized before COVID-19. So but not being our default position before COVID-19. Now to say that this has to be our default position under the current circumstances, which are, you know, just makes everything so much more complicated. Um, it then lends itself to going back to your original default position, which was separation. So we had many institutions in South Africa where routine separation of mothers and infants for, again, very little evidence-informed decision-making and, and very little reason was still being practiced as the norm. And so we're almost asking in some settings for people to now shift the usual practice um, under conditions that seem almost counterintuitive. So I think there's a lot of work to be done in terms of the translation of the guidelines, um, and it needs to come from, from everyone um, who's in a position to try and influence it. Great. Thank you so much for your dad. Uh, Ruth has a question around dialogues with mums and dads. Uh, Carrie-Anne was speaking to ventilation and the procedure uh, where donor milk is unlikely. Uh, Edelweiss was talking about um, energy, nutrition, uh, nutrition nutrients to support breastfeeding and ICU. Colleagues, thank you for those comments. Hopefully we'll get to those uh, in the Q&A. Thank you so much, Vidad. Much appreciated. Um, Dr. Mkwanazi, uh, Duma Mkwanazi, um, was a researcher for the DSI NRF Center of Excellence at the University of the Witwatersrand on early childhood development um, in that project. Um, she was part of the team also from the HSRC that provided technical support in the development and the enhancement of UNICEF's West and Central Africa region care for child development in Sierra Leone, which included training the community health workers to support families and caregivers in child development. And she is a grantee of the GSI NRF Center of Excellence in Human Development postdoctoral scholarship. Dumo, over to you. Thank you, Fim. Let me try and share my screen, okay. Can anyone? We can, we can see that too. Okay. Thank you very much everyone for attending our webinar. Um, I will be, oh, let me, I can, let me just try and move the next, to the next one. Okay. Um, I will briefly talk about um, the life course theory, which is also known as the life course approach. I will be talking about how this approach can be used timely to address early childhood development. Um, a big background, a bit of a background. We know that early childhood development is um, on both political and global agenda, and uh, we have also learned through this that investing in the first 1,000 days can alter a child's trajectory. And uh, like Vigad and Penny have also highlighted that parents, caregivers, and families need to be supported in providing nurturing care and protection. Uh, however, COVID-19 has resulted in disruptions in, in, in early child development and exacerbated the major existing inequalities 
in both low and mid-income countries and high-income countries. Um, the importance of uh, editorial development is also is also included in the in the sustainable development goals like uh, Vidat has briefly indicated and we know that uh, we our six of the SDGs directly address the early childhood development which is the foundation of of all human development across the life course um, the six that are, uh, I'm highlighting are and, and poverty in all its forms everywhere, and hunger, ensure healthy lives and promote well-being for all at all ages, ensure inclusive and equitable quality education and promote lifelong learning, ensure availability and sustainable management of water and sanitation for all, and also reduce inequality within and among countries. I will be talking about the life cost theory, uh, which poses that people's lives should be analyzed within structural, social, and cultural context, meaning that all stages of a life's, of a person's life are intricately inter intertwined with each other, with the lives of other people in society, and with past and future generations of all of their families. And health and well-being depend on interactions between risk and protective factors throughout people's lives. And the life course approach with a focus on early years has the potential to reduce health inequalities. And you need to target those transition periods such as ECD um, to ensure that there's early action for the best start in life, including breastfeeding, and that um, there's appropriate timing such as targeting those first 1,000 days, which is a critical period of rapid brain development and collective action by the society, including government, NGOs, civil society and academia to create healthy environments. That could include uh, platforms such as this one where we have um, various sectors presenting today. And also the World Bank has um, offered some guidance. So uh, on, on, they provided the 15 ways in which to support young families and um, and ch young children and families during COVID-19. And I will just highlight a few, like em emergency food delivery, including micronutrients, providing pregnant women or new mothers with counseling on health, breastfeeding care during COVID-19, distributing books, learning and play materials to homes, integrate uh, early childhood education into basic education, distance learning programs, and expand, expand cash transfers, child grants and social safety safety nets to promote early childhood development and also ensure information campaigns integrate key messages to promote early childhood development and nurturing care related to nutrition, health, stimulation and learning, violence prevention and psychosocial support. In conclusion, we can say we can, um, it's evident that um, children's lives have been disrupted, their schooling, their immunization schedules and nutrition uh, due to COVID-19, and we need to ra raise awareness that accompany early childhood um, COVID-related COVID-19 related awareness um, and ECD awareness should go together to support parents um, to to provide responsive caring to, to responsive caregiving to the children. The negative effects will not only impact the entire life course of the child 
but also the future generations. And therefore, the collective action that we talked about is urgently required from all sectors to mitigate these effects while the world moves towards the road to recovery. Um, I've also provided a few written material for those who are interested because of time, we, we couldn't address everything. So um, it will be available on the presentation. And I would like to thank everyone um, and also Professor Kusudus who couldn't unfortunately be with, with us today and all of you for attending. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Jumo. Um, it is important that theoretical framework guides us. Um, we need the evidence and we need the theorizing, we need the thinking in the area in terms of directions, next steps and what needs to be done. Uh, colleagues, one of the outcomes that we, one of the hoped for outcomes today as Dumo is directing towards us towards, are those proposals for moving forward? Given the theory in the area, given the evidence we have, given the clear messaging, what do we need to be doing? What are those practical next steps that we need to take as a sector? So Dumo, we have questions continuing to come in on the chat box. One of those, it's a follow-up question from Ronell in relation to that previous question for Bidad and Penny. But why do you think these practices have not been institutionalized in the way that they could be? What do we need to be doing differently? It's a taste, I suppose, Dumo, of the, the conversation perhaps in the Q&A, but what are your thoughts on why these clear guidelines, the clear messaging has not been institutionalized and what should we be doing differently? Um, I think what we should be doing differently is, is making sure that we, we, we keep having these awareness um, campaigns, um, bringing everyone on board, because it's, 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 it's unthinkable that in 2020 we are still talking about the, why the breastfeeding is important, because the science is there, we can see the children thriving, but I think it's just the political will or I don't know what to call it. So I think it, 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 um, we just need to, to, to be always pushing to, to, to put this, um, these issues uh, on, on the table like everywhere to, to make people aware like we, that the first step like this, this webinar that we've had to, because even in, 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 our, in academic circles, some um, are not aware of the importance of breastfeeding. Um, just to, to keep the awareness going, I think. Thanks, Jumo. And yes, the political will, I'd imagine, is central to progress, yeah, to the implementation of guidelines and frameworks. Uh, Namonde is saying, that um, there has been significant disruption brought on by COVID-19 and we need to be acting swiftly in addressing that and um, I imagine the, uh, the political will is central to that. Thank you, thank you so much Dumo. Uh, Kamesh Flynn is passionate about the digital transformation of policy objectives where possible to democratize and develop evidence-led policy. Kamesh's experience has made her passionate about encouraging active citizenship, co-crafting policy-led initiatives 
for sustained socioeconomic and context-specific impact. Um, Kamesh sits on the board of the Naeba Trust in Stellenbosch. Uh, she holds a, a master's degree in development policy and practice from the Nelson Mandela School of Public Governance and is currently joining us from the UK. Kamesh, over to you. Hi, Finn. Thanks very much. Can you guys see my screen? We can, Kamesh, very clearly, both you and your slides. Thanks. Thank you so much. Uh, hi, everyone. It's uh, good to be with a group of um, South Africans who are passionate about seeing early childhood development brought to the table. I'm, I'm really um, honored to be part of this discussion. Um, so I am speaking on the policy responses to early childhood development. Um, specifically, uh, I, I did do a literature review, so you'll find some of my slides are quite text heavy. I'm sorry about that. Um, but I just wanted you to have the, you know, the breadth and width of what I've, I've tried to cover in terms of what is happening around the world. There is actually so much happening uh, and we can learn from. Um, so let's begin. Um, so, in 2015, uh, the United Nations adopted the 2030 uh, Agenda for, sustain for Sustainable Development, which has been mentioned a few times. So I'm not going to go into it too much um, because it is a really strategic um, and important uh, point to depart from in that it was the first time in the history um, of global goals being developed that early childhood development was included in this. Uh, and one in 1,000 people throughout the world were consulted, which is quite something. Um, so my take on this is that it's really important, um, since we know how important uh, early brain development is, since we know the impact on lifelong learning and behavior impacts of early experiences, that we really review these goals uh, in the context of South Africa, I think. Um, I know many other countries are doing that at the moment themselves and looking at ways to keep um, early childhood development at the forefront of the agenda. Um, and so I am um, just outlining that at least 15 of the countries that were part of these goals had pre the pandemic already adopted um, three policy areas, which was to make two years of free pre-primary education available, um, paid breastfeeding breaks uh, for new mothers for the first six months and adequate paid parental leave. Uh, so these are three policy goals that will look quite different now um, in terms of just access to um, preschool education at the moment. Um, many mothers who are not working um, and yeah, in terms of paid parental leave that, you know, just seems uh, almost uh, like a dream right now. Um, so I am outlining it because I think that has been progress in the past, but perhaps progress going forward will look somewhat different. Um, I also think that there is a lot that is going to detract uh, away from trying to stick to the heart of the United Nations goals, which was no child left behind, because we are fighting a hammer and dance scenario, um, which um, COVID has been described, described as in the States, where uh, you know, we're constantly changing uh, the parameters of what we're asking civilians to do. Uh, in response to changing infection rates until the vaccine becomes available. Um, so adaptability is going to be key. Uh, so I loved this quote from the United Nations policy brief released in April, uh, that children are not the face of the pandemic. Um, sorry, I'm just not sure if you guys are seeing this. 
um, I think you are, uh, children are at the face of this pandemic, but they risk being among its biggest victims, in some cases by mitigation measures that may inadvertently do more harm than good. The harmful effects of this pandemic will not be distributed equally. They are expected to be most damaging for children in the poorest countries, in the poorest neighborhoods, and for those in already disadvantaged or vulnerable situations. So what is the scale of COVID-19 in South Africa? Well, we're reported as being the world's fifth highest um, in terms of our number of cases. Having said that, uh, there is also known underreporting um, due to the lag in death certificates being issued and diagnosis, um, as well as comorbidity, which masks the full extent of the crisis. Um, we also know that Africa has the world's youngest population overall, but that in fact, South Africa actually has um, the older population um, more than any other African state. So we can see that we are most vulnerable in Africa um, to loss of life um, due to COVID. Uh, and here, he, developing human capital potential has, is yeah, more of a priority than ever before. Um, and then we, we see, um, amidst the backdrop of the pandemic, a downgrade of South Africans' creditworthiness, South Africa's creditworthiness, which um, makes the public health and economic crisis navigation really, um, I guess, even more pronounced because policies that are implemented now will really shift um, the way in which South Africa um, achieves um, an improved creditworthiness uh, going forward. So the policy stakes are high. Um, and I also just want to say, I mean, the number, the data collection, the number situation of infection rates, it's not just South Africa. I mean, we've had the same um, situation in England where uh, the numbers were far higher than what uh, they could gather uh, at a local level. They just were un unable to gather it fast enough um, or efficiently enough because things change so quickly. Um, so I think the key here is to think about how, as we go forward, we navigate the policy space and uh, think about recovery with all of these things uh, in mind. Okay, so COVID-19 shocks that directly impact ECD. Um, we know that this is a public health emergency. Uh, I think what will worry all of us in this um, call and in this Zoom room <laughs> is certainly the, um, the other knock-on effects uh, to nutrition, care and prevention services. Um, I know I used to have sleepless nights when I was in government about uh, the amount of time we spent on trying to cure things and how little time we actually spent preventing things from happening. Um, and I think if we look at the fact that estimates predict an increase in maternal and child mortality in, low in um, middle income countries, um, because health services will become more scarce, uh, essentially because there are interrupted visits for healthcare related to HIV, creating risk of increased mother-to-child transmission. Um, the increased resource into the pandemic can tend to decrease resources to other um, mother-child health-related issues, such as immunization campaigns, et cetera. Um, so we also know that many um, early childhood education facilities and childcare facilities have been closed, um, and many children are deprived of cognitive, cognitive stimulation during this time, as well as meals and resources that would otherwise be provided through ECDs. Um, so, obviously, I think everyone on this call knows that the brain architecture is so critical at this early stage, especially sensitive to environmental adversity, um, which is another shock uh, that would need to be noted as we develop policy going forward. 
Um, I think additionally, just to note that, you know, it's really important to flesh up with the ram ramifications of some of the more intricate um, early childhood development policy uh, implications would be, especially around breastfeeding behaviors. Um, I think that is something that needs to be kept at the forefront of government agenda. Otherwise, it just slips to the bottom. Just listening to these amazing presentations prior to, um, uh, to this, I've just been really inspired at hearing the detail, which is so important uh, for policymakers to hear at this time. So I would encourage um, much more advocacy in this space. Um, so that we are focusing on prevention as opposed to cure in the midst of the pandemic. Um, so some of the macroeconomic shocks that um, have occurred, in my opinion, have really created and maybe amplified the vicious cycle for early childhood development. Um, the credit, credit worthiness downgrade um, really means that South Africa's health, nutrition, care and education risks in South Africa are amplified. Um, you know, additionally, we are probably all aware that we uh, have a 78% uh, rate of illiteracy amongst children in grade four, uh, which is not illiteracy, sorry, I beg your pardon, it's not, cannot read for meaning um, in any language. <laughs> um, and I think that is uh, a deeper problem, which I encountered when I worked uh, in the Department of Social Development. Um, we had a um, testing of children four years of age with a statistically significant sample across various demographics in the Western Cape, which showed us that children were roughly two to three years behind on age and stage of development. And that was about seven years, oh, sorry, five years ago. Um, and so plugging the gap um, as early as possible has never been more urgent um, because this crisis will only amplify that. Um, so they've already estimated that 42 to 66 million children who live in um, will now live in extreme poverty due to the pandemic. So that's over and above uh, poverty levels that South Africa already experiences. Um, and so, yeah, we're looking at a situation where we could actually reverse two to three years of progress in decreasing infant mortality. Um, and additionally, the cost of um, healthcare and associated food insecurity. Uh, these are massive shocks um, as we uh, consider policies that need to be developed. Um, I'm not gonna cover all the points. Um, I can share this presentation with you later. Um, so some of the microeconomic shocks that direct, directly impact ECD. Um, I think acknowledging some of the invisible knock-on effects of the pandemic is really critical in understanding which policies we create that are likely to be implemented. Um, having sat amongst um, ministers uh, across department us departmentally on, on executive committees where we are looking at what we can do and what we can't do. I think being practical around implementation on the ground um, is key um, to deciding which policies are going to be adopted. Um, and so whatever we advocate for uh, has to be realistic um, and it has to take into account, in my opinion, some of the invisible uh, knock-on effects that, that might not be known to all of us. Um, but that certainly uh, need to be considered. Um, so for example, how do we integrate and link um, education on breastfeeding and learning, um, early learning outcomes with incentives, for example, uh, that could be something that could be potentially implemented uh, as opposed to just saying, well, you know, we need to educate uh, 
parents, we need to uh, advocate for this. Well, how do we link it to something that's either already happening? Um, how do we link it to uh, existing programs that are working well and that are scalable and replicable? These are the kind of um, things that ministers and heads of departments look at. Um, so that we're not simply handing out grants in response to some of these shocks, but rather that we're looking at creative ways um, to educate in the midst of it, um, to train people up, um, to give them additional skills and know-how. Um, so some of the microeconomic shocks obviously come from macroeconomic shocks, but obviously household unemployment is at an all-time high because major sectors like tourism, um, the wine production is halted. These are major income generators in South Africa. So um, this is going to cause, uh, you know, continuous um, uh, uh, crisis for, for people who are making policies. Um, and they do need, we need to be thinking about them, even if it's not our speci specialization, we need to be thinking about how to link what we are um, advocating for. Um, the informal market makes up a huge uh, percentage, percentage of the economy um, and although it's not formally documented, it is um, really important that we keep um, the informal economy afloat um, and we're seeing knock-on effects to interruptions in supply chains because um, the informal hawkers have been shut down due to trying to keep people safe, but this is still an issue. Um, the digital infrastructure fail of not being able to distribute um, grants fast enough. There was money through the UIF um, for income relief, but that didn't get out in time. And so many households were left uh, without food. Um, women's livelihoods has been a huge uh, issue uh, because of needing to be home with ill um, uh, people in the household. Um, and massive job insecurity as women are unable to uh, be present um, at work. Um, or unable to attend work uh, or are homebound because of lack of childcare. Um, and then there's mental health difficulty, which is also um, a, a policy issue that needs to be addressed, um, as well as how to support the shifts in child behavior, which has also been noted as one of the impacts. Um, and then I would say there's just been so many knock-on effects um, that uh, were existing before um, the pandemic, before COVID, um, that have just been accentuated, like access to water, sanitation, hygiene facilities, and crowded conditions, domestic violence. Um, the family planning aspect um, has come out as I've discussed and interviewed people. Um, teenage pregnancy has increased in informal settlements because there is no education around family planning or what's available um, because uh, teenagers are at home and they're bored. Um, so these are some of the invisible things. Um, I mean, worldwide, the closure of schools has no historical precedent, never happened before, um, affecting more than 1.5 billion children and youth. Um, so um, this is really a loss that is going to accrue uh, into, in today's young generation and something that we need to be actively um, uh, looking to, to bridge um, in terms of the education gap. Um, in England alone, 34% of um, earlier providers in deprived areas um, will have to close within a year. 42% um, uh, of uh, earlier providers um, will be made redundant and two-thirds of parents without ch childcare are feeling stressed, worried or overwhelmed. And this is in England, I mean, South Africa, the, um, the sort of uh, environment that uh, people are living in, the densification of early childhood centres and informal settlements is much higher. So I expect this figure would be higher if we were gathering this data um, in South Africa. Um, so we all know about the education gap, 
Um, but before the pandemic, 43% of all children less than five years of age in the world were estimated to be at risk of not achieving their potential. Um, so that's just a really pronounced figure to, to remember. Um, and then even if we did instill a widespread digitization, um, we'd really have to be careful about supervision and training um, of, of parents uh, around supporting. I mean, even that in and of itself is a real uh, risk factor, simply because uh, many parents in township areas are, are illiterate and can't support children the way that we um, would hope uh, to do in a developed country, for example, where education levels are higher. Um, this is why when we developed the app to support parents and tra um, train caregivers, we literally sent it in cartoon format in the language, in home language, um, and there were no words needed. They could um, get the message through picture, um, picture messaging. Um, and then ECD provides a resilient um, base upon which to build policy. I'm not going to go through this again because I think it's been mentioned and I'm running out of time. Um, but essentially, just that ECD forms a foundation of at least seven of the of um, 7011 of the 17 SDGs. Um, and just as an example, I mean, climate change is, is still happening. <laughs> we had 35 degrees in England last week and it, it was pretty alarming um, and 20 degrees after dark. So that is a definite um, indication that, you know, we are moving into warmer climates and really human beings are the, the greatest lever to changing um, how the climate um, improves or doesn't improve. And educating early on uh, about responsible consumption practices, um, plastic, all the issues that, um, we as adults are learning about even now children absorb that information like sponges um, and this can be integrated into early childhood educational resources delivered through digital means or however we choose to do this going forward um, that really can leverage the greatest changes we plan sustainability for our planet so that's just one example um, but there are many um, as you can see that have been planned um, what are other countries doing to ensure no child is left behind well um, the uh, UNESCO um, uh, United Nations uh, planned a roundtable in 2020, uh, well, in July, and they had um, a team of ministers of education and their representatives, and many of them were very proactively addressing um, early childhood development, which is hugely encouraging. In the Seychelles, for example, they planned on um, uh, an effective communication plan, um, strong commitment to mobilize all stakeholders, um, in Cambodia, public-private partnerships was a, was a key um, component of their strategy, uh, using online platforms like me, uh, media, um, especially for children with no access to the internet, which is definitely the case in South Africa, um, and then paper-based learning to supplement that. Um, Arab regions explained um, how they were going to invest in early childhood care, focusing on support to parents and children with special needs. Um, Uruguay explained a new way of learning um, without compromising health and safety. Uh, Saudi Arabia um, had uh, ECC as their major theme um, with virtual kindergarten for children three to six years of age, um, initiated before and then amplified during the COVID-19 crisis. Um, China sending real-time advice and tips through social media and supporting early childhood care um, and in Zimbabwe printed materials uh, were sent. Mongolia, um, also um, looking at sending out printed materials and using TV as a medium to get the message across. So going forward, what kind of policies do we um, try and develop in the face of all of these challenges? Um, well, the UK has just recently launched um, a future-facing um, toolkit to develop policies. Um, and I'm just gonna use the model 
um, to try and define how we uh, go forward because sometimes things can look so hopeless um, and actually if you take it a step at a time it is possible. Um, one of the things I've learned through my work in government um, is that intelligence gathering on a local level is really critical to the success of implementing policy. Um, so I spoke to a number of people back home about what the realities were that they were seeing on the ground um, and essentially uh, really noted that the, the food insecurity was the biggest factor that people were worried about and the mobilization of public-private partnerships to work through that was really amazing. Um, uh, I think the the other highlighted point was the informal economy and how important it was to get that back on its feet again. Um, uh, and then just essentially um, how many children are stuck at home without any stimulation, um, especially in low-income communities. Uh, I'm not going to go through all of these points in detail. Um, so I would say the effects of poverty is most alarming and looking to mitigate that. Um, in any case, you know, if you look at America, for example, where they document um, the cushion that uh, African-American families have compared to white families, uh, the percentages um, of child poverty rates in African-American families are 32% versus 11% in white, in white families. Um, and so African-American families have one-tenth the family net worth of white families, um, even at similar education levels. Um, and so the point about uh, less financial flexibility or cushion to protect these families and their children during an economic crisis um, is just worth noting. Um, I think if we did that in South Africa, we'd be pretty horrified at that kind of data capture. But asking the question is really important to understand just how little margin um, people have. It is hand to mouth. Um, and what do we do around policies to help with that? Um, we are largely a social welfare state, but how, are we, how do we come, become better um, at distributing grants timelessly um, and in a way that links to policy objectives like education um, around breastfeeding and early childhood stimulation? Um, so uh, I'm just gonna move quickly. Just one minute to go, Kamesh, thank you. Um, so just uh, the lack of childcare options for parents, I've, I've noted this later. Dynamics of change is another aspect of the future facing policy um, framework. Um, and that's just looking, and I think I'm just gonna mention this because this really prohibited or um, our, well, our ability when I was in government to scale what we were doing. Um, and that was just working in provincial government, national government ultimately holds the budget allocation. Um, and to progress in this area, it has to be noted that South Africa's history of misappropriation of public funds to bail out state-owned entities over service delivery, continued corruption within the tendering process, and poor data collection really does prevent truth, transparency, and accountability. And if we're really going to implement or even develop policies, we have to acknowledge that. Um, and so that when we do describe the future, the kind of policies that we're talking about can actually be become um, policies that can bring reform. Um, when we look at the percentage of GDP that's spent on education, it is minimal. And I did my, my master's thesis on this. Um, and it was just the amount that was needed to bring quality interventions um, nationally was minimal. If you look at the Cornerstone Economic Research Unit's work, um, they do a lot of work in this area. Um, right. So yeah, the game changer, I would say investments in broadband access. Um, and digital public goods um, that support learning is, is a big one. Um, Great. Kamesh, thank you so much. I'm just aware of, of no, time. I'm just going to go for some time for the Q&A. No problem.
Great, thank you so much, Kamesh. Much appreciated. Um, sobering, Kamesh, sobering colleagues, the, the, the situation, the amplification of inequalities, the amplification of poverty, as Kamesh has indicated, the impact on unemployment and livelihoods, the informal economy, um, the, 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 the steps back in many ways uh, that we see happening. Uh, no child left behind. Is that really possible at the moment, given the, what we see unfolding, as Kamesh has rightly guided to us to think about the global context and the policy context, and perhaps most importantly in today's conversation, the focus on advocacy. What do we need to be doing? So thank you so much, Kamesh, for that presentation. Sobering but necessary in terms of advocacy and next concrete steps that we need to be taking. Um, colleagues, as you move towards the end of today's panel discussion, um, Emma rightly flagged that the reality of children in rural areas will be hit hardest in many ways, given limited access to early childhood uh, development resources. But in terms of our concluding conversation, we have a few minutes uh, before concluding remarks from panelists. But Ronel, I think, uh, has asked us to think about in a context like South Africa, where, and as you can see, colleagues in the in the chat box, breastfeeding is not normal, is not the normal, the norm in South Africa. Um, implementing, supporting, and advocating is something that is normal and easier, that only pops up when you have a child. But we do not discuss how we feed our young in primary school, but we talk about other contexts. Um, what are the long-term considerations? How do we normalize this? Going back to that conversation, that theme that's been running through today's conversation, how do we make sure that this is implemented to try and avoid some of the clearly emerging risk areas, the uh, amplification of poverty? Um, so Penny, back to you. What do we do in, 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 in 30 seconds? What do we need to be doing, Penny, in terms of implementing, making sure that the zero separation message actually takes place, that it's applied on the ground? Yeah, I think um, Ronell's point is very well taken, and I think we need to start normalizing breastfeeding right from early childhood. Um, and in terms of, and, and Jill also mentioned in her comment, fear and anxiety are driving healthcare workers' actions, and that's so true. We saw that with um, HIV, we still see that with HIV today, we fear is driving that, so we need to advocate, share the research, you know, that separating mums and babies is far more dangerous um, and risky than keeping them together. This just needs to be broadly shared in every healthcare setting so that healthcare workers have the confidence to, um, you know, take the World Health Organization's recommendations and implement them and not separate mums and babies. Very good. And thank you. I think we'll take that as concluding remarks, Penny. Very clear. Let's challenge this fear and anxiety. Let's, be, let's get the implementation of, of these guidelines. Let's normalize and it's time to implement. Thank you so much. Uh, Vidad, what are your thoughts on the implementation, the normalization and your concluding remarks? Thanks, Finn. So I'd like to echo what Pivin Penny's just said, and I agree with both, uh, both of our participants who posted into the chat box. You know, it's very hard to try and normalize something under a pandemic <laughs> situation. 
So if we're trying to say that, you know, everybody must breastfeed, but breastfeeding wasn't the norm before, you're really fighting a losing battle. And if you're trying to normalize something, starting from the health system, that's another losing battle. Um, and it tells us why it's, it's falling flat at the health facility level. So as much as the guidelines say that I think, whether it's global guidelines or national guidelines, we have to make sure that, we, that, that these practices become the norm and not the exception. Um, and that's why there's a lot of support. So I, I failed to mention at the beginning of my presentation that I belong to the South African Civil Society for Women, Adolescents and Children's Health. And Saxo Watch has been working very closely with the Department of Health to try and look at how we translate the guidelines and how we can strengthen the guidelines in terms of inter interpretation. And so I think there's a collective responsibility here that you can't just expect it to come through one sector. Um, it really is a collective responsibility. And like that's what I said, whoever feels that they, that they have the influence and, and they have a, a responsibility towards improving the situation, it needs to happen. And Ronald said, you know, why don't we start in primary school? A child who's been breastfed will think it's the norm. But because our children have not been breastfed, it's not the norm. And so it doesn't really pass on in that intergenerational transmission of good practices. Um, you kind of do what everybody else around you is doing. So I think there's a lot of work to be done in all sectors for us to try and support a collective uh, support initiative. And I think we're on the right track. I've talked about, you know, the health booklet aligning with the nurturing care framework. And for us in South Africa, we're very fortunate because our ECD policy predates the nurturing care framework. Our road to health booklet redesign predates the nurturing care framework. So we're on the right track. We've got civil society partnerships with government that are really strong. And I think we all have a role to play. And if we go away with that message, let's just do our part. Thank Great. you. Thank, thank you, Vidad. It is a collective responsibility. And clearly, the, the consequences if we don't take action and take action now are too serious. Yeah, thank you for that. Dumo, your last closing remarks. Um, I would just say um, this collective effort that we've already started, we can just, we need to continue involving everyone, civil society, government as much as we can to highlight the importance of editorial development and breastfeeding. And thanks everyone for attending. Thank you, Dumo. Yes, it is. It's a cross-sectoral effort that needs to take place. Absolutely. And finally, Kamesh, your concluding remarks. Um, thanks. I'm trying to put my video on, but it's not letting me. Okay. Um, I would just say that there are already existing um, testing beds for delivering educational resources. Um, I know that uh, when I was in government, it was um, a digital platform, messaging platform that we used uh, that was sponsored by private sector and parents used it. It was, it was, being, it was changing the, um, the rate at which parents were reading to their children because we were sending reminders three times a week. Um, they were actually starting to learn how to hold children in their laps and read to them. It shifted even the behavior patterns of how they were reading to their children uh, as, as opposed to even the, you know, the didactic aspect of it. Um, there is a lot that can be achieved through messaging, um, including you know, education around breastfeeding um, and the pictures that you, um, some of you shared in your presentation. Those are powerful. Um, if you're sending them to people who have low literacy levels, pictures speak a thousand words. Um, and you can link that I think, and be creative with information around where to get grants from or things that people really do yes. rely on. 
Um, and I think that's the opportunity, isn't it? I mean, there is so there are so many desperate people right now um, that actually, including educational content, that's going to improve um, the well-being. It seems like a small small win, but it's it's actually a big win because if you can thank you, Kevin. Yes, and we, and we need those wins. Sorry to interrupt, but we need those wins. We also have a sense of what works and what can be done, and you've shared some examples. Mm -hmm. So Penny, Vidad, Dungo, and Kamesh, and with Anna in her absence, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. From the UK, Kamesh and Penny, colleagues and audience members, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. We have some thoughts that get out there, and let's do what we need to do. Thank you, everybody. Thank you very much, everyone. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye.